This is The Guardian. Carruthers and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. What a treat the Champions League final turned out to be and a comeback of all comebacks for Barcelona who are crowned champions of Europe once again. We'll review everything that happened in Eindhoven plus take a proper look at the Lionesses selected for the World Cup. England for England. Serena listened and Beth is heading down under. We'll discuss all that, hand out a few end of season awards, take your questions and that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Susie Rack, I feel like I should now call you Statwoman because you posted up the other day from the end of Euros coverage to the start of proper World Cup coverage, 59 matches, five countries, 196 articles, most importantly, 29 podcasts and five trophy lifts. I mean, what a season. Yeah, it's been a very long season, hasn't it? (laughs) A good season, a great season, like lots of fun. But I'm really glad it's over. I'm just very, very tired. But, you know, I can't complain too much, can I? You need to sleep a little bit. But when you read those stats, you must look back and feel quite proud. I'm quite proud of you in a very (laughs) non-patronising way. Salon Andy Hickman, fellow hatter, which many people may not know. Congratulations. Oh, my friends. What a beautiful, beautiful couple of weeks it's been, Faye. Did you ever think it would happen? No, genuinely. Um, I kind of dreamed. I believed, I did believe in a way, but I'm a Luton fan. How can you, you know, you know what it's like to be a Luton fan. You can believe all you like, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. I was lucky enough to fly to uh, Amsterdam from London Luton Airport and I got to Soak up a little bit of the uh, the atmosphere in the town, the city, very, very minimally. But there was some nice bunting and some nice projections of Luton Town being promoted. And it made me feel really connected. So, yeah, beautiful, beautiful weekend. Excellent. We need to catch a game next season, that's for sure. Alex Ibiceta, you're not going to want to come to Kenilworth Road as a Barcelona fan. I mean, why would you? Our token one for today, you must be cock hoop yeah, my voice is still a bit um, gone forever from the Champions League final. Um, to say I'm, I'm happy is, is underestimating it a bit. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, one day, Salon, Luton could lift the, the Champions League trophy. You never know. I reckon. I reckon. It's the, next, it's the logical next step. Of course it is. Oh, bless you both. Oh, <laughs> wow, says the Arsenal fan who I cannot think when they might ever get their hands on a Premier League trophy again or a WSL one either. Uh, right, the ribbons on the Champions League trophy are Blaugrana. Barcelona did win their second Champions League title coming from two goals down against Wolfsburg to win a 3-2 thriller in front of a record crowd of 33,147 people. Susie, an incredible day with an incredible game to go with it what was it like out in Eindhoven oh buzzing I mean what's great is the Barcelona fans like just travel in such force which just makes the atmosphere absolutely jump but like to be fair Wolfsburg had a huge contingent there as well with Tifo at the start of the match like the atmosphere in the ground was the most partisan Champions League final crowd that I think I've been in for a very 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 long time well ever and I've been going since 2018 it was a really good atmosphere. Um, I really enjoyed it when they played the like 
two main songs of the clubs at the start of the match and the whole contingents were singing along absolute bangers both of them and yeah it was just a fantastic atmosphere I mean the very first Champions League final I went to in Kiev of all places was packaged together with the men's final still at that stage so it was um it was the men's final the following day and it was basically just full of fans that either couldn't go to the men's Champions League final for some reason or sort of just you know wanted to be part of the the men's Champions League weekend vibe and so it was just a very you know like non-partisan dull crowd um that filtered in and was still filling up 20 minutes into the game was sold out but it was because of the men's final so like to see to reach a point where it's like sold out of its own accord in its own country marketed separately and with big traveling contingents of fans it's like a game changer that doesn't that just doesn't happen yeah and, and the game itself was fantastic salon and, and started with a bang as well uh, Eva Pior the UEFA Women's Champions League's top scorer scoring after only three minutes Lucy Bronze returning to that Barcelona starting lineup after six weeks out and it's fair to say she looked a little bit rusty definitely it, it was sort of um, quite a surreal moment I think seeing Lucy Bronze I think the, the pass from the goalkeeper is such a lovely one that, that sits right in front of her she's calling for it she takes a good first touch out and then, it, it, yeah, it was a, it was weird to watch. She kind of starts travelling inside, invites pressure and then gets bodied off the ball, loses it and then it, it, it results in a goal. It, it didn't feel quite real watching that happen in the first three minutes from probably one of the best, if not the best, right back in the world. But I think you're exactly right. I think it, it, it did scream perhaps too early for her to come back. I was quite surprised to see her in the starting lineup, but the rustiness, the kind of decision making, the uh, not used to the intensity of what that game was going to feel like. You can't recreate those those situations in training. So, I think that's kind of what caught her out. I think she responded well. I think it wasn't the best Lucy Bronze performance I've ever watched in my life. Um, but I think she she managed to get through the rest of the game. But yeah, just quite a surreal moment and something that we all stood there a bit stunned in the ground thinking, has that has that just happened? Uh, I don't think anyone really believed that that's how the first goal would be, be conceded for Barcelona. Well, if you're a Barcelona fan, Alex, I'm sure you were hoping that a second one wouldn't be conceded. But obviously you had plenty of chances yourself in the in the first half. But when Alexandra Pop got Wolfsburg second, were you thinking, oh God, here we go again? I think it was quite evident that every Barcelona fan had PTSD from from Turin last year. I think every Barcelona fan in that moment would kind of been thinking, oh no, here we go again, essentially. But at the same time, I think the Barcelona team that showed up this season to this final is, is completely different to the team that showed up last final. I think the last final, when Leon kept scoring, it was quite evident that Barcelona were not at the level that Leon were at in the moment. Whereas here, you kind of felt that Barcelona were at the level. It's not like they put their head down. They were they were creating chances. Irene Paredes missed that header that and she would score that 98% of, of other chances she would get. And it was very unlucky not to score. And you look at the chances that Barcelona had versus Wolfsburg and it was always going to happen. I think the game plan, not necessarily the game plan, but the way that both teams play, Wolfsburg were always, they were never going to have possession. They were never going to have all the opportunities that Barcelona were going to have. It was going to be an Alex Pop opportunity that she's gonna 
being in her first opportunity, that, that might be the only opportunity she gets in the entire half. And what by you as well, I think she's unstoppable at goal scoring. So it was kind of, not in terms of scoreline, but the game went exactly as you expected it to go. But obviously Barcelona were just not finishing all the chances that they were creating, which is quite evident. And they do that quite a lot. And it was just unlucky. Yeah, but I, I did feel the PTSD from Turin, but I, at the same time, did feel that Barcelona were the better team. And they had, they were creating chances, and not. It's not like they they were kind of sitting off. I think you saw it against Chelsea in the summer finals that it was a bit more complicated, um, take the balls across the area and everything else. Um, so it was, I had faith. Um, I was miserable, but I had I had faith. <laughs> Susie, did you have faith at half time? Did you have an inkling that Barcelona might be able to turn it around? I mean, well, I watched Arsenal do it in the game against Wolfsburg in Germany come from two goals behind to level it to two all to take to the Emirates. So, like, obviously it's doable. It was just... The thing that staggered me is I thought Barcelona looked really shell-shocked in the first half. Like, the, the weight of the passes was so off. Like, a lot, lot of stray passing. They just didn't look themselves. I think they had a little bit of a Turin hangover as well in that half and were sort of mentally trying to escape that a little bit. So it was always possible, but I wasn't sure if it was likely on like on that basis because they did not look like the Barcelona we've known, well, in recent years, but also, you know, mostly this season, although they've not had the best season or the most, I mean, it's ridiculous because they've been <laughs> like incredible. Um, but for their standard and without Puteas, they've not played as good a football as they have in the past couple of years. So, like, I knew it was possible, but I, I didn't necessarily think it would happen. But it was just a completely different team that emerged at half-time, like, completely different. And, I mean, they were just, they, you know, like, asked them afterwards, you know, oh, what, what happened at half-time? And it was just like, oh, yeah, we're just told to believe in ourselves, blah, blah, like. And, and I just surely something more than that happened. Surely something bigger than that went down because you just came out with just everything clicking again. There was also just so many um, chances in the first half that just didn't go their way and just didn't quite fall right for them. That at points I was thinking, is it going to be one of those days where no matter what you do, nothing goes in? And then everything shifted in the second half. 104 seconds was all it took between the two Patri Gaiharo goals. Um, how important has she been, Alex? Puteus obviously been unavailable for a large part of the season. Barcelona have had to rejig their midfield a little bit, but I mean, she came on and, you know, what, what an impact. Yeah, definitely. I think, I don't think it would have been smart for Jonathan to put Alexa Puteus on at halftime. I think that would have rattled the team a lot more than it would have helped because the team have been doing fine without her, essentially. And, and mostly in the second part of the season, first half of the season, it was a lot of adjusting. Uh, I think second half of the season, they've finally settled. And that Kiro Walsh, Patri and, and Aitana midfield has been working quite well for them. But I think Patri is is adjusting to a new role. Obviously, when you look at Kiro Walsh as a pivot, she kind of entails a lot of the Barcelona pivot. It's it's kind of when you do your job right, you're going unrecognizable on the pitch. Um, and that's just the role that, that that role plays. And that's the role that Kiro Walsh has played essentially for a lot of her career is kind of you don't recognize her as a big, big star because her job is 
it's very consistent. It's and I'm saying I'm not saying that in the bad way. It's the very key part of the job, but she's not going to do all these flashy moves. Um, and I think Patri had that same problem when she was playing the pivot that she was kind of going under the radar. Um, especially when you have Alexia Botellas in front of you, it's it's quite hard um, to get that that kind of um, stardom. But I think post match when someone asked Patri what kind of got into her. Um, to score two goals in a Champions League final, she was like, "I was, um, I had the aura of Alexia in me." So it's it's quite telling that, yeah, I think Padre and Aitana have adjusted really well to their new roles. Essentially, Aitana had to become Alexia in the sense of of becoming that attacking midfielder. Padre had to play in a higher position and be more involved in the attack. And um, as you saw here, is of making those late runs into the box and finishing that off. Um, but I think Padre has been one of the best players in the world for a very long time now. And now, you know, scoring two goals in the final kind of gives her that that crown um, and recognition that, that she's kind of been deserving of for a long time. Yeah, I, like, I agree on Patri sort of stepping into the Puteas role. It's interesting that she said it like that because uh, they've sort of needed a player to step into that forward midfield role all season, like really convincingly. And no one has, uh, neither her nor Atana have really like, grabbed that role by the horns like I'd say you know there's been flashes but like neither of them have properly sort of embraced it because it's you know it's such a different role for them to play when you're so used to playing alongside someone that plays there so effectively so to see it happen in the final I thought was really quite special and it actually really excites me for Barcelona next season because the relationship between those players with the understanding that they have of what it takes to play in that role and what the person playing in that role wants from the players around them, I think is a unique situation to be in. I mean, injuries happen all the time, but I always think that when when a big player is out and the other players adapt to filling the hole to a certain extent, they learn a lot about that role and what it requires and when you then insert that player back in there's just this new level of understanding between players despite the fact that they've not played together for a while that is really really strong and of course Salon Friedelina Rolfers winner ultimately in the end felt inevitable Alex and and Susie have both said they really believed that Barcelona were going to turn it around did you feel the same as well? Yes, that start for the second half made you think that this was going to be really difficult for Wolfsburg to hold on to. That rollful goal is was quite hilarious, though. And what, what a goal to, to win the Champions League with. It almost felt like it felt like a bit of a microcosm of Wolfsburg's like overall downfall. Like you're 2-0 up against one of the best teams in the world. You're cruising in the first half. And then suddenly it just all capitulates in front of your eyes. And that's basically what happened with that third goal. It was just, I think it was Wilms with the, with the clearance, it hits another player, bounces back. It's just like, it was just poor from everyone. It was a comedy of errors was what it was. It was, but it was also kind of beautiful in that like football can just be completely chaotic for a second and then for a team of... A whole team who pinned so many of their hopes on winning that game, probably at half time, like in an instant, a flash was completely taken away from them. And what can you do in those moments? I just was thinking about what was probably going through the whole of the Wolfsburg team's heads at that minute, thinking, how have we messed this up? We just can't give away 
these kind of goals to these kind of players. And then you just saw the pendulum swing. I mean, the, the pendulum was swinging massively to Barca's favour in that second half and the momentum was building and you just knew at that point it was going to be really, really difficult to come back. Even, although it was only just one goal, like they could have, I don't know, they, they did push in those last few minutes, but it all just felt a bit too late and a bit too lacklustre. Yeah, it did, Susie. And it felt as if the wind had been taken out of their sails somewhat. But it also felt a little bit strange how few changes manager Tommy Stroot actually made. I mean, Eula Brand, who created the goal which helped them reach the final in the first place with her assist against Arsenal, and Tabea Vasmuth, last season's second top scorer in the competition, were both on the bench, which just seems mad unless they're carrying injuries. Yeah, bringing on Bremer in the 84th minute, like who got the winner against Arsenal in the semi-final at the Emirates. Not really enough time for her to have a significant impact on the game either. So, like, they were really, really boasting of a full-strength squad to pick from and how fortunate that was. And But it does make you wonder whether that there was, like, actually some, like, real truth in that or not because, like, I don't understand why you're not bringing on your brand. And Wasmuth, I just don't, like, that to me, is quite baffling. But it was, like, I kind of liked that it was a really tight end to the game and that it was a really tight result because in all my years of covering the Women's Champions League in person, I think I've only seen one game be particularly tight and that was the first one, which went to extra time in 2018, the one in Kiev where... It was nil-nil, Wolfsburg, Leon. Wolfsburg scored first in added time. Then Alex Pop got sent off, then Leon scored four. And it wasn't actually that close because there was just complete collapse. But all of the ones since have sort of been over in the first half. And so it's actually really, really satisfying to see a game go the distance and, yeah, be a much more exciting result for me to watch it in person than, than they have been in recent years. And I think good for the game as well, good for the Women's Champions League, because they have been a little bit too one-sided in recent years. And actually, you say it was close, but probably Barcelona deserved to win it with 26 shots and an XG of, of 4.6, I would say. And it's it's Barcelona's second Champions League trophy, Alex. The first one, though, that they've actually been able to celebrate with, with their fans. What exactly does it mean to the club and the supporters? I think it means almost more than actually winning the Champions League. I think essentially every... Interview before Turin was kind of like we've not been able to to win the Champions League with our fans. We've we won it, and it was great, but not having the fans there was kind of a really, really, really big downfall to kind of the the emotions around winning a Champions League. And it's quite evident that obviously you see the the support of the fans and you understand why it's so important to to these players. And um, you see, you've, you see all the, the Cap New records, you see the traveling fans in, in masses, you hear, I mean, that stadium was absolutely buzzing. It was so loud. And um, the Wolfsburg fans were absolutely drowned out in the second half once those two goals went in. And for the players that, that support is, is really crucial. You've seen a consistent and in attendance in the smaller stadium as well, in the Johan Cruyff stadium, I think the average was about 4,000 um, this season. So, the fans play a really big part in the, in the rise of Barcelona and their dominance, I think, in Europe. So winning it in, in front of a crowd was was a really big deal for them. 
Um, every interview beforehand, it was like we want to win the Champions League, and more importantly, we want to win. We owe essentially. They they felt like they owed the fans a Champions League after what happened in Turin last season, and um, because obviously that was first Champions League final with fans, and there was again a lot of traveling fans. The crowd show up, and and they felt guilty for for losing in the way they did on on top of that. Um, so I think it was quite telling that the players really, really, really appreciated. They appreciate in general all the fans and they love to celebrate with them. There is a an inside joke traveling with the fans of the the theory of the two. It started quite a few months ago. And obviously this is the second Champions League and every time the players would kind of tease it. So in every photo they would put a peace sign and there is a photo of the trophy lifting. Everyone was like, put a two up, put a two up. Um, so that relationship between the players and the fans is quite close. And you see them kind of recognizing like all the fans on Twitter, for example, would have a little two in their username. So it's quite telling how close the fans and, and the players are on that sense. And I think when the fans enjoy it, the players enjoy it. And it's overall just a, a really, really good feeling. And yeah, the, I mean, the fans, the, the support that Barcelona have had in general is just amazing. Yeah, two trophies, Susie, but three consecutive finals. Obviously, that first Champions League win, we thought we might see an era of dominance for Barcelona. But as Alex said, that loss to Leon in Turin last year kind of spoiled that a little bit. But it's still two trophies in three years. Are they already favourites for next year's title? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it's good because they are undoubtedly playing the most attractive football in Europe. It's really enjoyable to watch. The fan base has gone with them en masse. I mean, I don't know how many coaches travelled this year. Last year to Turin, there were 37 coaches that um, drove overnight from Barcelona to Turin. And I know there were coaches doing the journey to Eindhoven as well. So like the level of commitment from the fan base is hugely deserving of it as much as the, the football they're playing and the way they're playing it and the quality of the players. I just hope the rest of Europe can keep up and stay competitive. I think there was something really satisfying about the two styles of football that went up against each other in this game that are so, so different, but have like such good qualities and really disrupt each other. So I like, just, I yeah, like that's my, my one risk is that they now just accelerate away from the rest of the pack. And I, I just don't want that to happen. And I, I, that, that doesn't mean Barcelona staying still. It means others raising their game and really figuring out a way to play against this football that is just so, so, so difficult to play against. I, mean, I was chatting to Jonas Side about before this game for his column for us, like he did a bit of a tactical breakdown and he was just amazing. But one of the things he said was when Arsenal played Barcelona last year, the first game um, in Barcelona, and he said for the first half an hour, they just did not make a mistake, not a single mistake. And he was like, just like frustrated, obviously, as a manager of the opposing team, but also was just like he said, it was incredible to watch as a fan of football because there was not a single mistake in that in that 30 minutes. And he's never seen that happen quite in that way. So yeah, I mean it's enjoyable, isn't it? But I just hope <laughs> I hope I hope people figure out how to play against that. Yeah, the, the, Susie raises an interesting point, Salon, because uh, I've got a question for you from Adam Salter, who sent this in on Twitter. Will Wolfsburg ever win the Champions League again? 
They've won two Champions League titles, but close to a decade ago now, and they've lost four finals since then. How do they catch up? It's just, sorry, it's just making me think. I was at the UEFA event beforehand, and they were, it was Janice van der Sonden and Beth Mead on one team, and it was Judy Feeting and Lotta Sherlin. And they were playing this game, and it was like this or that that you had to choose. And the question to them was, would you rather have a runners-up medal four times or win the Champions League once? And I just walked out. I was like, that is such a stupid question. <laughs> Asking professional athletes, would you rather lose four times in a final or win once? I was like, obviously it's win once. Not finish second four times, which is, yeah, probably what Wolfsburg fans are feeling uh, massively. And you don't, you don't, like, yeah, you don't trade the experience of winning for, oh, it's just good to get to finals. So a lot of empathy for, for those Wolfsburg fans and, and the club. But will they ever win again? I mean, yeah, they were, they, were, they were 45 minutes from winning on Saturday. Obviously, it's a really simplistic way of looking at it, but they scored two goals. They have incredible players. They have some of the, like, the best players in Europe. Watching Lena Oberdorf again brought back everything from the, the Euros final. Just that She is only going to get better if she can keep injuries away. You've got Pop still going. You've got, like, Hoa Power, you've got so many good players in that team that, yes, of, of course... They have the, the capability to win and they know how to win. They did have a slightly easier way to the final for this one, but that can also happen again. So, no, I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't rule it out. But I think, yeah, it depends on, on, on their opposition. It depends on who else is, is coming up and around them. I think, I don't know, you can do loads of thought experiments, right, and say put them against an Arsenal or a Chelsea in that final and what would have happened. But playing against Chelsea in that final, so probably could have got a result in some ways. I don't know if Chelsea going 2-0 down at half-time in the Champions League final after what they've experienced before would have come back from it. But then again, it is Emma Hayes. So, yeah, they, they, they definitely can can win the Champions League. I'm, I'm just going to pick up on, on that, Susie. Uh, an easier route to the final. I could just see you wince <laughs> as they beat Arsenal. I didn't mean that game. <laughs> well uh, well rescued, Salon, but a tiny bit too late. <laughs> Just to finish us off, Susie, two English players involved in this match, two England players, uh, a first Champions League trophy for Kira Walsh and a fourth one for Lucy Bronze. You obviously wrote about Kira's role in your match report afterwards. What a way for them both to finish their first season in Catalonia. Oh, it's great. I mean, I just like, she's always been my favourite England player by country mile she's just absolute quality and it's really satisfying to see her fit into that Barcelona midfield which wasn't like automatic it took a bit of work she said it herself that she didn't really feel totally comfortable until after Christmas but even that is pretty rapid but you know you always wonder when a player is the most skillful in in England in the Women's Super League whether they'd be able to do it in the most technically gifted environment. And so to see her flourish in that role for that team is incredibly satisfying. And she's just a great person as well. One of the things that I thought was telling was that all of the players afterwards that were sort of filing past her in the mix zone were talking about how much fun she was and like how good she was for team unity and things like that, which I thought was really interesting because I sort of assumed her... Catalan or Spanish is is not the best is the impression that I've got that she maybe wouldn't be able to do that to a certain extent and to be 
the life and soul as much. So it was. I thought that was interesting. I can tell you something. She can do the worm. And that translates anywhere. You don't need to speak Spanish in order to be the life and the soul of the party doing the worm. And she'll just bite into like an entire giant Colin the Caterpillar cake with just like her bare hands. <laughs> right. Well, I think we have established that Kira Walsh is the life and soul of the party. She does not need to speak fluent Spanish. We'll talk about her again in a second. That's it for part one. In part two, we'll look at the 23 lionesses heading to Australia as part of England's World Cup squad and give out some end of season awards as well. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. So Susie, Serena Wiegmann obviously listened to the pod and clearly decided that Bethany England had to go on the plane because you and I, and let's be fair, everybody <laughs> said that she had to go. Taylor Curry, though, wants to know who's going to start as the striker when we actually get to Australia. It's a good question. I think I said last week that like, I, I would... T- controversially maybe I didn't say it I have said it a lot anyway you did say it I know what you're gonna say and you did say it that I would keep Bruce on the bench (laughs) you know like not had the best ends to the season I don't think in an England shirt we've seen a like standout performance when she started a game across 90 minutes I think she fades quite quite early on um, and loses her impact off the bench so for me going on like current form and also, like, the strengths of players, right? Like, so I don't think Beth England is a great impact player. I don't think Rachel Daly is necessarily a great impact player. So for me, I would have one of those starting and then maintain the effectiveness of Alessia Russo off the bench. Like, that for me is the logical thing to do. But then I'm not England manager and haven't got two European Cups. So, like... I'm always quite loathe to try and second guess or criticise Serena when her pedigree is so good. Like until she makes a mistake, yeah, it's hard to to say anything. But yeah, that is my instinct. Mm. Salon, were you pleased with the squad overall? What was your overwhelming feeling about it? Yeah, I was really happy for Jordan Hobbs and Beth England that their decisions paid off um, to make those moves and get get back on the radar. Um, and also really happy for Laura Coombs. I think that was a really nice a nice inclusion and well-deserved. Yeah, it was quite sad for Maya Letizia. I think she's had an excellent season. What more does she need to do um, to get in? But I saw Serena's comments about seeing her a bit more as a fullback than, than a centre-back. It's really interesting, though, if you look at the squad as a whole and kind of compare it to who went to Euro 22 and actually think about some of those players that we that we are missing due to various reasons, retirement, injury, illness, or just being dropped. And you are missing Leah Williamson, Beth Mead, Frank Kirby, which feel quite important, a very important spine of a team. And then you're also missing Ellen and Jill because of, of their retirements. And then Demi Stokes and Nikki Paris are the other two names that, that don't feature from, from last year. And, and I think some of those obviously are more impactful than others and will be felt more. But it, it's it's been really great to see an England manager use all of the different opportunities that she's had from a major tournament success to the next one to rotate and see what works, who fits, how does it how does it all come together? And I think that that there weren't massive surprises in that squad announcement apart from maybe uh, missing out Letizia. Yeah, and actually, I I wondered whether 
part of the reason for Letizia not being in. Obviously, she mentioned fullback instead of centre-back, but also Esme Morgan plays with Alex Greenwood at Manchester City. And I wondered, she talked quite a lot about combinations in that press conference, Susie, didn't she? And I, I wonder whether that may have had something to do with it as well. Yeah, I definitely did. I like. I mean, personally, I would have taken uh, Mayer over Esme Morgan just because of the season that Mayer's had has been phenomenal. Um, you know, I probably have her in team of the year as one of the two centre-backs. So it feels particularly harsh. I mean, anything can happen to it between now and the start of July that means that she gets rotated in anyway. So I wouldn't like totally hold my breath on whether she's out entirely. The one that I thought was particularly not harsh is the wrong words, like that I was mildly surprised about um, because I don't necessarily totally disagree with it. But like the one that I think could have been different I like Katie Robinson a lot, clearly one for the future, clearly an inclusion that's about giving her big tournament experience and stuff like that. But when you've got so many changes to the team because of the retirements and because of the injuries, like I just wondered about whether Nikita Parrish should be going in instead, particularly given her form towards the end of the season, which was really strong. Like I thought she was United's best player in the cup final and stuff. And so, yeah, so I was a little bit surprised to see that. And yeah, felt a little bit for her because yeah, great end to the season. And she's got that, she's got a level of experience in major tournaments that a lot of the others playing up front don't have. So yeah, that surprised me a little bit. Um, Also Jess Park too, you know, if you if like, I think I would have had Jess Park or Paris, but like Paris edging it based on experience over Katie Robinson, maybe, but maybe that's just me being too harsh. I think Katie Robinson's been fantastic this season and in a Brighton squad that have really, really struggled. Um, I think she's been a real shining light. Susie, there's still a question mark over when the players are actually going to be joining up. The FA are adamant that they want to stick with the 19th of June. The ECA and the clubs are digging their heels in and saying 23rd. I know it's only four days, but it actually makes a really big difference in terms of prep time. And it also puts the potential farewell game under threat. What's the latest? Is there any agreement that's been made? I mean, it's only two weeks away. Oh, the whole thing's a mess. And I like I just think everyone is being quite stubborn all round at the moment. Like no one really wants to back down. There were talks ahead of the Champions League final and afterwards, I believe, as well, that didn't come to any like resolution. It's ongoing is the like the the word I keep hearing over and over again. But basically, yeah, there's this bit of a a bit of a standoff going on. Um, you know, it has to be case by case is sort of the argument I think coming from the FA and the pushback from the ECA is, you know, we this is a compromise position. The actual mandatory release date is the 10th of July. We all recognise that that's a joke. So we've negotiated this like early release period of the 23rd to the 29th, which takes into account a bit of flexibility within that. And I sort of get their position in a way in that you've got this problem where, you know, if they say uh, yes to England on the 19th, they've got Germany wanting to call theirs up on the 20th. Do they say yes to that? What if a team has asked to call up on the 18th? Like what makes England special that it should be outside the rules? But at the same time, it's so late that this has happened and I'd be interested to know, actually, and I've not totally asked this question, like how extensive the discussions have been between, like within the last year even, because 
maybe they have been ongoing for a whole year and it's taken it coming to a head at this stage for it to be widely talked about. But England's had these plans in November. Clubs were made aware of it. They hadn't approved it. Um, and they're very clear on that. There was no approval of the plans, but they were made aware of them in November. So why are we so close to a world, like traveling to a World Cup without agreement on this? So there's clearly been like some kind of breakdown in communications between, from an England point of view, between November and now. And like, yeah, absolute mess from start to finish. Um, I just want to ask Alex, obviously we've seen a couple more Barcelona players pull out of the Spain squad or, or say that they're not going to be involved in the Spain squad for the summer. Obviously that's been a situation that's been rumbling on for a while with the dispute over the environment around the national team. Do you think that all of the players, um, all 15 or 17 or whatever it is of them, that have not played for the national team in the past sort of year, not going to the World Cup and... Like also, like how, like what does it make you feel about your relationship to the national team as well? I was wondering because that must be quite hard when, you know, you watch these players lift a, a Champions League trophy, like be incredible, and then uh, won't be able to be a part of that that team, and uh, that, that just has like so much potential in the summer. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot to unravel. Essentially, I. You know, Padre said it yesterday that as of today, she's not going to the World Cup. Uh, Mappy is quite evidently definitely not going to the World Cup. I think she's made that loud and clear. But the thing is, I think where the problem is lying now is that a lot of players, they want to go back if there's a compromise. I think a lot of players will accept that they will go back under X condition. And obviously, shockingly, <laughs> the Federation's not really um, living up to that. And I think, well, also, as of now, even if the players say that they want to come back, the Federation is is kind of taking that responsibility upon them. So essentially, it's not going to be up to Jorge Villa to pick players. It's going to be down to the Federation to say if they're allowing X player to be available for selection. So it's it's that first stage of the players need to get approval from the federation essentially to be available for selection, and then you need to you need to have Jorge Villa actually pick them. So it's 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 more it's just gone down to the politics of the federation being hurt by the players and and bruised their ego. It's kind of like the petty decision of we're not gonna we're not gonna let you back into the squad because you said this and you said that and it hurt our feelings is essentially what's what's going on now, but. I know a few of the players, a few of the 15 players do want to go back to the national team. But again, it's about those internal discussions about the conditions of, of them coming back. And obviously we saw it in Paredes, came back to the last the last squad's call-up. So you, you might see a couple, but at the same time, it's the fact that it's down to the Federation and the fact that we have obviously seen the attitude of the Federation of, of being hurt and their egos kind of taking the best of them. I think it would be really hard for some of the players to get back in the squad, but the possibility is there. And again, the internal discussions are going on quite thoroughly. I think especially now that the Champions League final has has gotten out of the way, I think we might see a bit more progress, but at the same time, how much progress are we actually going to see? So I think it'll be quite evident when, when the squad comes out next week, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's exactly the same as, as Spain's last squad, but obviously... There's still a week 
where things can change. Yeah, we're talking about grown adults here, which always surprises me. And actually, leading into that, Susie, there's also a a broadcast rights row brewing as well. It's kind of brewed and stewed, really, by now. Uh, The UK, Italy, Spain, Germany and France still haven't agreed deals to show the Women's World Cup. It means that FIFA president Gianni Infantino has threatened a blackout. He says the bids were so low compared with the men's tournament, they were a slap in the face of the players and a slap in the face to all women worldwide. Apparently, the the UK bid isn't that far off, Salon. I'm not ever going to come to you. Do you feel slapped in the face? Um, I mean, to be fair, he does make a, a good point. He doesn't always necessarily go about it in the right way, as we know, but he does make a, a good point. But what's the latest on this, Susie? Is there actually going to end up being a blackout? Are they going to come to some kind of arrangement? Who's at fault here? I hope not. I mean, it's it's farcical, right? Like... Our TV should be being inundated with advertising for this tournament, and it's not. And that is so bad. And I just like the thing that gets me is, regardless of, I actually think FIFA have a tiny point here, right? Like, I think they're massive hypocrites in in the way they they are making the point in that they have historically undervalued the tournament. They have given away the rights for free, and now they're suddenly demanding money for it and going, "Oh, well, we're up in prize money and blah blah blah," and we're suddenly investing, so now you have to. As if like the mental shift that goes on and like the practical shift that goes on has to happen at their pace um, when, you know, we've been pushing for change for so long. I mean, they're not even going for equal prize money until the next World Cup. So like it's staggered there in a sense, too. So I find that all slightly ridiculous that, you know, it can be so angry and uh, like threats of blackouts and things like that when they are the architects of the situation to a certain extent. But at the same time, the offers are incredibly low. Like I think Italy's is around 300,000. I think the Germany joint bid from two of their broadcasts is around the 4 million mark. The UK BBC ITV deal is like around the 9 million mark. So it's significantly better than the rest, but they're all low and they're all significantly lower than what was paid for the men's. I mean, I think... The UK bid is around the sort of, you know, like eight, nine percent of the, the men's figure mark. And that's the highest. So they're all like staggeringly bad. But at the same time, is a blackout the answer and is a threat of a blackout the answer to this problem? No, um, no one wins from this. Like tactically, it's a really bad decision because no one wins. FIFA does not win from this, does not get more money. The broadcasters don't win. You know, there's there's journalists who like have no idea if they're flying out to Australia in a few weeks' time, for example, like literally have no clue because they don't know if they've got rights. Like it's a huge problem. And then the public, you know, the, it doesn't do any good for the game, any good for like national teams, any good for those countries um, yeah, competing in this tournament. It's just, there is a point there. But tactically, this is like possibly the worst way to be making your point. That's the thing that gets me. Salon, how much are you fuming on a scale of of one to ten? Your face tells a thousand stories. I know, not good for audio, is it? Um, Yeah, I'm just, I'm sitting with a lot, really. I'm sitting with like the thread or the the parallel of both what Alex was talking about with the the Spanish Federation and and Susie on FIFA and, and a lot of the TV media companies is that powerful men are just gatekeepers of our enjoyment and 
not only our enjoyment as fans, our work as journalists, uh, <laughs> the role of players and athletes, like there, there's still so much power concentrated in the wrong hands that is so influenced by incredibly fragile egos. And whether that's Jorge Vilda, whether it's Infantino, whether it's uh, people unwilling to uh, change their, their bids to go higher because of, you know, digging their heels in. Unfortunately, we're sitting here and we've started this conversation with, yeah, a really in-depth discussion of some of the best football we've seen the all season from some of the best athletes we get to see and get to watch as players. And then to sit and have a conversation where there is a series of men within the Spanish Football Federation and, and managing the Spanish women's national team who will not allow some of the best players we've ever seen play football to participate in a World Cup at the peak of their athleticism, at the peak of their game and their, their careers because they won't say sorry or because they said something in the media about what they think they deserve as an athlete to play. And now that is, that's the reality of the situation. We can take the joy and the love and the, and, and the pure appreciation that we had sitting there on Saturday and watching this and all the content we've seen of the Barca girls absolutely loving it and, and having, getting all the clout and kudos that they deserve. But the reality is a number of men have made a decision that they are not going to be able to play or have created the conditions that means that they don't feel that they can play in that tournament and have more power to them. And then the same thing with, with FIFA and, and, then, and the TV rights across, across the world. We, we are so at the helm, no matter what we do at the moment, until governance shifts, until these people are out of this game, we will have come into these problems in different forms every single year. And that's what makes me feel really sick. Like I feel it in my stomach listening to Alex as a Spanish fan thinking I have to go to a World Cup or watch a World Cup or I'm going to watch, I'm not going to get to watch the best players of my country play because they haven't been treated in the way that they, they should be. And because a load of men are upset that now maybe they want to play again, but they haven't said sorry. It is, it, yeah, it's just, it makes me so angry and sick. And these are the conversations that we need to keep having alongside the interrogation of the football and alongside the tactical analysis, because that's really important too. But you have to hold this because we are so far from where we should be as a game. Yeah, and that's what we do on the Guardian Women's Football Weekly and we'll keep you updated on the situation next week as well. It does mean we've run out of time for our end of season awards and I know that Salona's done so much prep for this that we're going to ask her back next week and we're going to have some of our regular panellists I'd rather talk about the politics, Faye, anytime, anytime. <laughs> but all of your prep was for the awards. No, actually, all my moments are political next week. So. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> okay, we'll tune in for the political pod next week. Salon, see you later. See you later, guys. Alex, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. See you soon, Susie Rack. Bye, I'm going back to bed. Oh, lucky you. I'm off to work. Um, We will do the end of season awards in depth next week, as I said, with some of our panellists from across the season. Salon's going to be joining us again. She's already had hours of fun with this this week. Get yourselves involved as well. You can contact us on Twitter or email us on womensfootballweekly at theguardian.com to get your awards in. It is our last show before the end of the season. Next week, we'll take a short break and then prepare for the World 
World Cup. We will be back previewing the tournament in July as everything gets underway down under and, of course, be with you throughout. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver and Jesse Parker Humphreys. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Sal Ahmad. This is The Guardian. 